Don't judge a book by its cover. Things are not always what they seem. Looks can be deceiving. We have many such idioms like this in the English language, probably because we are also prone to do the opposite. It is in our nature to judge things by their appearance, very easily have the wool pulled over our eyes. The prevalence of social media, I think, has exposed this, often in harmless, humorous ways. You find many videos of elite NFL quarterbacks putting on a wig, changing their appearance, showing up at some junior college, pretending to be the new quarterback, and they start slinging the ball around and blowing everyone away. Or you'll see videos of NBA stars pulling on, putting on like full prosthetics to look like an old senior citizen showing up at a, a pickup game at a park. And then they start just dunking on everyone, making everyone look foolish. And then there's a big reveal. The wig comes off. The disguise is removed. Much to the shock and amazement of everyone there. What always amazes me, though, is how many people fall for it. They seem to just play along or, or fall for it. Whether it's undercover athletes, undercover musicians, undercover bosses... People are gullible and seem to buy it. It's probably because they're not expecting it. No one is expecting the CEO of a company to show up as the new guy flipping burgers next to you. By nature, we we do tend to judge people by their appearance. And when people's guard is down, they are more easily fooled. Now, when it comes to sports or entertainments, it's not that big of a deal. It's just for laughs when this type of deception occurs. But what happens when... Such pretenders enter the church. What happens when a pastor or a church leader is wearing a mask, spiritually speaking, and by all appearances looks like a a good guy? No one's guard is up. No one suspects anything. But in reality, what if he's not a shepherd? What if he's an undercover wolf? Come to deceive and devour the flock. Then what? Now you're not talking about low stakes anymore. People's eternal lives are at stake. This is a serious issue. The false teacher or the false prophet has always been a snare to God's people. You know, throughout Israel's history, their greatest threat was not external. It was not the Egyptians or the Assyrians or the Babylonians. Their greatest threat was always internal. It was the false prophet or the corrupt priest. For these men were able to lead the hearts of God's people away from him. This explains why there are so many warnings in God's law to beware false prophets. You've got to keep your eye out for them because they're not so easily seen. Looks can be deceiving. Not everyone who claims to speak for God actually does. And while there are many differences between Israel and the church, one thing hasn't changed. The prevalence of false teachers. Hence, this this warning stands, beware false prophets. This is why nearly every single book in the New Testament contains a warning like that, or many. And the first book of the New Testament is no exception. Matthew contains some of the strongest warnings against false teachers. And they happen to come from the mouth of the Lord Jesus himself. And that's what we have actually in our text this morning. Matthew 7, verses 15 through 20. So go ahead and take your Bibles. Open there now. Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20. We have just a few passages left to go this, this, uh, as we're together for the Sermon on the Mount. We've entered now the conclusion where Jesus is wrapping up his message. This sermon has been all about his kingdom and his righteousness. This is the kingdom and righteousness we are to seek first. The kingdom and righteousness 
We enter by faith, the kingdom and righteousness. We live out as we follow him. Verse 13 of chapter 7 marked the beginning of the conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount. This is where Jesus is going to draw out some application and the response to all of his teaching. And his response is, in a sense, the response he calls for is, in a sense, pretty straightforward. It is to enter. You better make sure you're in this kingdom. You've entered this kingdom through him. Strive to enter. Verse 13, going back, verses 13 and 14. He says, as he wraps up, enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. So we learned last time, Jesus paints a stark contrast here between two gates, two ways, two crowds, two destinations. It's one of the most black and white passages in scripture. That's because Jesus knows salvation is black and white. You're either in or out. You're either on that narrow path leading to life or you're not. And if you're not, that means you're on the broad path leading to destruction. There's no other option. There's no third way. The reality is Jesus says only a few find the narrow gate, not the many. It's a few. Only a few walk the narrow path. Why? Humanly speaking, because it's hard. The demands of discipleship are high. You have to lay down your life and pick up your cross if you're going to follow this Jesus. You're risking every relationship you've ever had, denying the ways of the world. It's not easy, but it's worth it because life eternal is only found the way of Christ. Now, as our text last week, we follow immediately with verse 15, the next passage. And it starts with this warning, beware false prophets. But it's not unrelated to what he just said. It's as if the narrow way wasn't hard enough. Do you know what? You know what makes the narrow way even harder? It's the fact that it's lined with false teachers who are trying to entice you to leave the narrow way. Come join me on the broad path. There are many. Imagine back in the 1600s, you're you're a pilgrim fleeing persecution in Europe. You hear about the freedom and the opportunity of the new world. So you sell everything you have and you, you, you purchase passage on a ship heading west. It's going to be a long and dangerous journey. You're entirely at the mercy of that captain, that crew. But what if the vessel you chose was actually being led by a slave trader disguised as a captain? And what if he's not taking you to the new world, but to an island in the Caribbean where you're going to live out the rest of your days as a slave? You wouldn't even know better until you arrived. And at that point, there's little you could do about it. You would be captured. Your doom would be sealed. And so it goes with many people held under the sway of false teachers. He promises to usher them to heaven. He claims to follow Christ. But he is both deceived and a deceiver. And the undiscerning who follow him, they're going to wind up at the broad gate headed to destruction and not no different until the very end. So we read this morning, Lord Jesus is the chief shepherd of his church. And he has appointed men to serve as his under shepherds, elders, pastors, overseers. He has. Their duty is to shepherd his sheep, to usher them into the kingdom, to point them to the narrow gate, to lead them on the narrow way. And Christ's authority has been entrusted to them. But the problem with this is that the enemy knows that. 
And as he seeks to subvert the church, he knows the most effective way is through undercover shepherds, through wolves in sheep's clothing. And that that would just spell the, the literal doom and disaster of all those caught under them. And so we're told not to be unaware of the schemes of the devil, to not let our guard down. And Jesus echoes that sentiment in his singular command to beware. Beware these false prophets. Be on guard. Don't let them mislead you. This is a warning the church must heed. Let's do that. Let's read this passage first, Matthew 7, 15 through 20. Follow along as I read. He says next, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruits. There's just one main command in this passage. It's at the beginning. Beware. Take heed. It's a present imperative, ongoing, standing orders. Constantly beware the false prophet. Never let your guard down. This is not a command to simply be aware of them, but to take it a step further, be on guard against them. If you went to a zoo, you see a rattlesnake, you might tell the person you're with, hey, check out that rattlesnake. You want them to, to observe it, but there's no urgency in your voice. Or there's no threat. But if you're hiking and you see a rattlesnake there on the side of the trail, you're going to say to the person behind you, like, hey, watch out. There's a rattlesnake right there. Beware. You better walk really carefully around that thing. You're not just wanting them to observe the snake. You want them to be on guard against it. It's dangerous. And that's what Jesus intends here with this command. Only his object is not a snake, but a false prophet. Beware false prophets. Now, I imagine most of you are familiar, probably, with the concept of the prophet. Although I think most people associate the prophet with someone who tells the future, foretelling the future. And that was occasionally a sign prophets gave to speak of their authority. But that's not part of the main definition of the biblical prophet. Their main role is more about forth-telling the word of God. In both the Old and New Testaments, the prophet is one who is sent by God and who speaks for God. He is a herald, a spokesman, a messenger. His message begins with, thus says the Lord. It's binding even on kings. Since God's word holds supreme authority, you can see how the prophet would wield that same authority just as a delegate, as a representative. But herein lies the danger, because we recognize, especially us who believe, we recognize the supreme authority of God's word. We get that. But how do I know you come from God? How do I know you speak for God? You say you do, but how do I know that? Just because someone says God sent them, God spoke to them, they heard this from God, that does not mean it's true. There have always been, in fact, many more false prophets than true prophets. Always throughout biblical and modern history. That's always been the case. Plaguing Israel, plaguing the church. But you know, the thing about false prophets is they never advertise. No one advertises, hey, I'm a false prophet. This actually isn't true, but you should still listen to me. They all claim they're speaking for God. And those who listen to them, who are undiscerning, 
not heed what Christ is going to say to us, they're going to be in a lot of trouble. The Old Testament had extremely strong cautions against false prophets. Here's just one. Deuteronomy 18.20, the Lord says, The prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. Death penalty. God didn't even hesitate to enact the death penalty for those who speak falsely in his name. He does not take it lightly when you take his words in your mouth and he did not speak them. You're making it up. He does not take kindly to those who adulterate his word and his authority. We think of murder as being the worst crime, and physically it is. You're taking a life you don't have the right to take. But what about spiritual murder? Isn't that pretty much what the false prophet does? And he's leading people to hell while convincing them they're going to heaven. He claims to be escorting them to the narrow gate. In reality, he's just bringing more people through the broad gate. And the undiscerning who listen to him, they're going to find the rudest of awakenings. Truth matters. The very fact that Jesus says, beware false prophets, already makes obvious. Jesus believes there is such a thing as objective truth. This over here is true. Everything else is false. Our, Our culture no longer believes that. Truth is not objective, but relative, subjective. People now fancy having their own truth, my truth. But to God, who's the source of all truth, your truth is a lie, and it will lead you to hell. The truth, rather, is found only in Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. You must go to him for saving truth, which is found in his word. But this is why those who adulterate his word are the greatest of enemies. According to the Lord himself, the word for false prophets in the Greek is pseudo-prophetes. It's just the word for false crammed together with the word for prophet. But we're constantly warned against all things false throughout the New Testament. That same prefix, pseudo, is attached to a bunch of words. Anything false, we're warned against. The false apostle, the false teacher, the false speaker, the false witness, the false brother, And ultimately, the false Christ. There are falsehoods all around. They can be found in every way, except one, the narrow way. There's only one narrow way of truth that leads to the kingdom. So you need to beware all other ways. You need to beware all false prophets. They're going to lead you the wrong way. This is the most serious of warnings. Like I said, the church better not ignore Jesus obviously has more to say than just the main command, beware of the false prophets. So to think on the rest, I want to give you four considerations to help you guard against false prophets. From this passage, four considerations to help you guard against false prophets. First would be this, the appearance of false prophets. From verse 15, the appearance, we're first going to consider the appearance of of false prophets. He says again, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. So first, we're going to consider the, the outward appearance of the false prophet. They're, he says they come in sheep's clothing. They're imitating sheep. Sheep is an unmistakable reference to the true believer. He's going to say later in Matthew 10 to his disciples, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Numerous times, he refers to his disciples as sheep. And so we have false prophets imitating sheep. 
The whole point here is that these false teachers are uh, deceptive. Their appearance is deceptive. They're not, they're advertising their true nature or their true mission. They're like spies in warfare. They don't wear a uniform. Most historical wars, the armies wear uniforms, both to identify the enemy and to prevent friendly fire. So Civil War, for example, the Union wore navy blue, Confederates wore gray. But spies don't wear uniforms, at least not not their true uniform. They're going to be dressed up as people from the other side, because that's the whole point. They're trying to infiltrate and subvert the enemy. And so do false prophets. There are some opponents of the faith who are very overt, blatant, obvious. They're open, they're hostile. That is not who Jesus is talking about here. Some people, they're loudly wearing the enemy uniform. Nobody confuses, for example, the atheist Christopher Hitchens with being a false prophet. Because he's not claiming to speak for God. He's not claiming to love or represent God at all. And he's clearly on the other side. But Jesus is talking about people who, at first glance, they, they appear to be on our side. Like, oh, this person's a Christian. They talk like Christians. They know all the Christianese, all the lingo we use. They say the right things. They, they do the right things. They like the right things. They seem to be in the right circles. They may even know the scriptures, quoting some Bible verses. By first impression, you, you may not suspect them to be a wolf. They appear to be a sheep. But just like Jude 4 says of false teachers, he says they creep in unnoticed. It actually goes a step further, though, when you, you examine Christ's imagery more closely. Because you see, he doesn't say false shepherds come to you as sheep. He says they come in sheep's clothing. Now on the surface, you, you probably picture this like, like Little Red Riding Hood. Right? The wolf shows up, takes the place of grandma, puts on a wig, puts on her clothes, gets in the bed, all in order to deceive Little Red Riding Hood. And so you read this, you probably picture a wolf with like a sheep skin on pretending to be a sheep. But that's not really the picture. Jesus says these wolves come in sheep's clothing. By this, he does not mean they're posing as sheep, but that they're posing as shepherds. This term for clothing, sheep's clothing, it's enduma. It refers to a coarse outer garment. It'd be made by animal hair. This was the uniform of the ancient prophet. That's all they wore, this coarse hairy outer garment from Elijah to John the Baptist. This was their distinct garb, communicating an austerity, a rejection of the world's comforts. And there are instances where false prophets would put on these outer garments to appear as true prophets. In addition, it's not just clothing. He says sheep's clothing, that the sheep's clothing was the uniform of the shepherd. Shepherds wore these outer garments. Theirs, of course, were going to be made from wool, right? From the sheep. And so one might identify a shepherd by his sheep's clothing, his shepherd's garment, this heavy woolen outer garment. And so with this in mind, I think it's much more likely Jesus is giving us here a picture, not of wolves trying to be sheep, but wolves trying to be shepherds. It fits the context, the whole urgency of warning against false teachers, false leaders. Animals like sheep have no natural defenses, but they're still born with instinct. And by instinct, they can identify natural predators, at least try and run away or at least outrun their slower friend. 
But when the herd spots a predator, they're, they're all going to be on high alert. But sheep have no instinct against shepherds. They seem to quite naturally trust shepherds, even like rely on them for their survival. And when the shepherd is around, the sheep are not on guard. They're totally unassuming, just head down, eating. But you can see then how devastating it would be if that shepherd was actually a wolf. And he could gain the most intimate access to the flock. None of them would be any the wiser. There'd be no resistance. By the time they figured it out, it'd be too late. It'd be the end of that flock. This is just how it happens with false teachers, which is why he's giving such a stern warning to be aware and beware. He's going to tell us in a little bit how to ID these false teachers. It's not going to leave us unequipped. But here we learn you, just, you can't judge them just by their basic appearance. Looks can be deceiving. On the surface, they will look like pastors and preachers of the faith. On paper, they might be orthodox. They're not denying any major doctrines. They will blend in with the culture of the church. They'll use all the right buzzwords and popular terms of the church. They'll hide behind degrees or honorific titles. They'll label themselves evangelical, associate with other accepted Christian leaders. They'll feign a piety, maybe reading the Bible, praying. They might even preach from the Bible. None of this is wrong, obviously, but the the other point is none of this by itself proves that you're a true man of God. A false teacher could easily conform to all these externals. There's more to it. You can't just judge a book by its cover. Running in a disguise is one of the oldest tricks in the book. Satan has been disguising himself from the beginning, as has his servants. You know this passage, 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen through 15. That's where Paul says, 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen. 13. He says, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, he says, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. At first glance, you're going to see someone who looks like a servant of righteousness. But may not be the case. Appearances can be deceiving, so beware. Don't let your guard down just because someone has the appearance of a pastor, preacher, shepherd, elder. They might be, but it goes further. Let's look then to a second consideration. Let's go deeper to the nature of false prophets. Secondly, the nature of false prophets from, again, verse 15. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So going under the surface, Though they appear as sheep, or more specifically, I would say shepherds, these, these false teachers are in reality more akin to ravenous wolves, Jesus says. Wolves, as you know, the most common natural enemy to sheep back then, roaming the hills in packs looking for a stray sheep. It's, it's a game over situation. There's no chance. Even an adult sheep has zero natural defenses against a wolf. And so they very much rely on the protection of the shepherd. Let's just strike a chord. Like, didn't Jesus say something about that? He taught on that, didn't he? John 10, 11 through 13 is what Jesus says. John 10, verse 11. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. 
He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and he is not concerned about the sheep. Here Jesus says, he is the good shepherd. We know that the chief good shepherd. But Jesus serves as the paradigm for all of these under shepherds. They must share his deep concern for the sheep. Like Hebrews 13, 17 says of church leaders, it says they keep watch over your souls. Shepherding imagery, they're keeping watch over your souls. That includes protecting the sheep, not against literal wolves or thieves, but against error. Right? You realize we're in a truth war. Satan is the father of lies. He deals in deception. The elder then keeps watch by guarding against error, identifying, refuting the false teacher and teaching. Now, some shepherds, though, they're merely hired hands. They're not going to lay down their life for the sheep. They're in it for the money. They see ministry as a paycheck. They're paid laborers, so they're not really that concerned with the soul of all the sheep. They're more interested in the wallets of the sheep. They're there to fleece the flock. Hence the caution we read this morning, 1 Peter 5, 2, where Peter tells them to the elders, shepherd the flock of God among you, he says later, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Look, the laborer is worthy of his wages, but the shepherd must never be driven by money. A love for the sheep must compel him. Now, there's a third type of shepherd, though. You have the good shepherd, you have the hired shepherd, but then here comes just the outright false shepherd. This is, this is now the false prophet, the wolf in sheep's clothing. A hired hand, I mean, he's bad in the sense that all the sheep under him, they're, they're probably going to enter spiritual sloth. They're not going to strive or thrive, rather, spiritually. But those under a false shepherd are in real trouble. They're not, these shepherds, they're, they're not looking out for the wolves. They are the wolves, both deceived and, self-deceived and deceiving others. And the undiscerning just let them right into the sheepfold. False prophets or teachers are masters at blurring the issue of true salvation. They, they muddy the waters of the gospel. It, it's the rank heretic who outright preaches false doctrine. It is easy to identify. It's easy to say that. That's clearly wrong and reject it. It's not what we're talking about here. The, the false teacher, usually either they don't preach the gospel at all and just leave it out, or they preach such a watered-down version. It's, it's not wrong, but it is woefully incomplete. False teacher's deception, it comes most often not in what he says, but in what he leaves out. All the stuff he just omits. He will make no mention of the bad news of sin and judgment. He'll never stress the, the urgency of repentance and self-denial. He will not preach faith as submission to the lordship of Christ. He will not make the gospel and its demands clear because that, that's only going to attract a few people. Most people don't want any of that. I mean, but he's interested in the many. The many are found on the broad way. He wants numbers. But again, remember that the false teacher does not advertise he's on the broad way leading to destruction. He is, again, he's self-deceived and deceiving everyone who follows him. The threat <clears throat> such false shepherds present to the visible church is real. This is why 
from Peter, now the Apostle Paul, he echoes Christ's warning, probably Paul's strongest warning in the same vein against false teachers. Listen to what Paul says. He's speaking to the elders of the Ephesian church as he departs from them from his visit. Listen to what he says. Famous words, Acts 20, 28 through 31. His farewell, he says to them, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Then he says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. These are sobering words. He's talking to, to good, godly, qualified shepherds of the Ephesian church. But he tells them, like, I'm leaving. You better be on high alert. Because Paul, Paul knows the schemes of the devil. And it's just a matter of time before he raises up his servants to pose as shepherds. But did you notice, where do they come from, these savage wolves? Paul says, savage wolves will come in among you. He says, from among your own selves, men will arise. These are homegrown false teachers. They're going to divide the flock. They're going to lead away the undiscerning as plunder. So he commissions those leaders who are godly. You better be on constant high alert. Paul calls them here savage wolves. Jesus called them ravenous wolves. The term Jesus uses is interesting. Speaks of being plundering or greedy. It's used elsewhere to speak of swindlers, people who are swindlers. And I think that that's just the perfect word for the false teacher. They're a swindler. They promise eternal life, but they swindle people and they're only giving them eternal death. And sadly, I think we all know the examples of this are like way too common. Just going back the past 50 years, it's, it's like shooting fish in a barrel to come up with examples of false teachers who are unmasked as swindlers, as wolves. And if you think this is not a threat to the church, you're sorely mistaken. It's probably never been a bigger threat given the influence of mass media, radio, television, now the internet. This is the biggest problem. And now they can swindle millions. <clears throat> and back in the 1980s, Famed evangelist Peter Popoff claimed to heal sick people and prophetically receive personal details about their lives. But he was unmasked because it was revealed all the while he was receiving audio transmissions in his ear from his wife and staffers on the floor gathering details about people. And also he would plant people, healthy staffers in the audience in crutches and wheelchairs, bring them on stage to heal them. Amy Simple McPherson, founder of the Foursquare Church, was an adulteress. She faked her own death to run off with her lover. Lonnie Frisbee, who was involved in the rise of the Calvary Chapel and Vineyard Movements, was later disowned for secretly being a homosexual. He died of AIDS in 1993. 2006, Ted Haggard, leader of the Charismatic Evangelical Movement, resigned after it was discovered he was paying a homosexual escort for drugs and sex. The list goes like on and on and on. You know, back in verse 6 of chapter 7, Jesus likened these belligerent, hostile unbelievers to dogs and pigs. And their nature is obvious. Like, you can immediately see who they are. There's no mistaking them. Wolves should be obvious, too. 
to those who are looking out for them and, and know how to identify them, they might have a pretty good disguise at first, but their inner nature is going to come out. That's the thing about nature. It always comes out. Their falsehood will be revealed. And this leads us to the third consideration for being on guard against false prophets. And Jesus helps us with this in the remainder of the passage. Thirdly, the identification of false prophets. If they're such a big deal and a big threat, I hope he's going to tell us how to identify them. They're undercover. They're in sheep's clothing. So how can we possibly spot them? He's going to tell us the identification of false prophets. Starting verse 16, he tells us, you will know them by their fruits. False prophets often come masked behind a veil of safe, accepted cultural Christianity. The danger comes in the fact that they're not overtly false. So how can we possibly identify them? He says, by their fruit. We judge not by appearance, just like the Lord. Looks can be deceiving. He looks to the heart. We should do the same. That's going to be revealed in what Jesus calls fruit. We are to judge by fruit, which is to say what their life produces, what their teaching produces. Now, to help with this, Jesus switches analogies from animals to plants. He's making the point how the inner nature of a person here, of a prophet, it's going to reveal itself in their fruit. Verse 16 He says, you will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles. Are they? An obvious rhetorical question, expecting a negative answer. No, of course not. You plant a vineyard for one reason only. You want fruit, specifically grapes. Now, the edges of your vineyard might get overgrown by weeds, by thorns. And you're not going to go finding grapes on those thorns, nor would you expect to. It's just, it's not even in the nature of those thorn bushes to produce grapes. It's impossible. The same goes for, with uh, figs from thistles. Maybe you've got a briar patch growing around a fig tree, and you're not going to find any figs on the thistles, on the, the weeds, just because by its nature, it cannot produce figs. It's not that type of plant. All this makes just a very simple point. How do you identify a grapevine? Other plants, other vines, they might look very similar, but there's one irrefutable telltale sign proof you've got a grapevine. It's the presence of grapes. That's it. The point is that fruit is a dead giveaway to the identity of a plant. And so it goes with teachers, shepherds, prophets. You'll know them by their fruit, whether good or bad. They'll tell you what you need to know. The nature of a tree determines the character of its fruit. And so, look, fig trees, they're going to bear figs. In addition, the nature of the tree will determine the condition of the fruit. Or good trees, they're going to be bearing good fruit. Verse 17, he says, So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce good fruit, nor can a bad tree produce, or I'm sorry, A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. And here Jesus stresses there's only two trees. Last week, there's only two ways. Here, there's only two trees. There's not a third tree. You're either a good tree or a bad tree. These are clearly referring to two types of prophets. Easy to extrapolate two types of people, really. But the term for good, the good tree, speaks of that which is profitable, useful. The term for bad tree... It's actually a word for rotten or putrid. 
So one of these trees is useful, worthwhile. The other, worthless. But here's the point of this image. Just by looking at them from the outside, you can't tell. You just see two trees. You're not, you don't necessarily know at first which one's good, which one's bad. They both look the same. You can't see their roots. You can't tell which is good, which is bad. Earlier this year, I bought a mature, semi-mature, you know, potted lime tree at a yard sale for like a steal price, brought it home. And given my sad skill with fruit trees, just like two weeks later, all the leaves, all the fruit fell off, like everything came off. And I didn't know if this thing was dead or alive. It was just like some environmental shock, like what's going on? But I watched it. I watered it. Thankfully, all the leaves came back. And right now, it's setting a ton of fruit. So I know, still a good tree. I didn't totally kill it. Still a good tree. Like we know, good trees are going to bear good fruit, which is what they do. Now, it's interesting, though, about verses 17 and 18, that when talking about fruit, he uses a different term for good and bad. See, verse 17, talking about good trees and good fruit, uses the word good twice. But in Greek, two different words for good. Same thing with bad. Bad trees, bad fruit. In the Greek, it's two different words for bad. Now, when he's talking about fruit, he switches terms to those that deal with morality. Right? Good fruit is now we're talking about that which is virtuous or righteous. Bad fruit, he just uses the term for evil, that which is wicked. This makes clear as if it wasn't already obvious. He's not talking about literal fruit, but deeds. He has in mind righteous or unrighteous words and deeds. The type he's been explaining all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. He's given us a picture of his kingdom righteousness. There you have what the fruit he's talking about. And so the point he's making is, again, very simple. You identify the nature of a person or here, a prophet, by what comes out of them, namely good or bad fruit. Or in other words, the true prophet will evidence genuine kingdom righteousness per the Sermon on the Mount. The false prophet will not. This is essentially the same point Jesus makes later. He connects the dots between fruit and the condition of a person's heart. Since we're close, just turn the page over to Matthew 12. And look at this, Matthew 12, 33 through 35. He's speaking to the false teachers of his day, the scribes, the Pharisees, right after they commit this unpardonable sin. We'll save that for later. But look at verses 33 through 35. He says right after that, Matthew 12, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. He says to them, you brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of the good treasure what is good. The evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. He's talking about a tree's roots or a person's heart, the real nature, who they are on the inside. Now, we can't see that. I can't see someone's heart. We can't see, is that person born again or not? Do they have a heart of stone or flesh? Are they dead or alive? I can't tell just by looking at them, but I can see what comes out of them. And look, even us Christians who are genuinely saved, we still have the sinful flesh, so we still sin not talking about a sinless perfectionism here, but those who are truly born again, you've been given a new heart in Christ. You should 
That should show somehow. There should be evidence of new birth. Though imperfect, you should see habitual fruit of, I don't know, like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The fruit of the Spirit. You should see new desires, new deeds, a new direction to their life. And all the times they do blow it and fall into sin, you should see repentance. You're going to know them by their fruit. This is how the false teacher will be unmasked. And what do you know? This is just consistent, both the Old and New Testaments. They tell us repeatedly how we are to measure spiritual leaders, whether they're good or bad, true or false. It's really simple. It's by their words and their deeds, right? Their character and their teaching. Compare, you know, examine their character. Compare their character with the marks of godliness required of them. Places like 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, the elder qualifications. That's why they're given. It's all about their character. Do they evidence this fruit, this character? Also examine their teaching. Are they conforming to sound doctrine? Are they preaching the whole counsel of God's word? And Titus chapter 1 is one of those places where he lists the qualifications of the elder. It's all about their godly character, that they're above reproach. Down in verse, 19, or verse 9, he adds, They must be able to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. He says this in verse 10, because of the prevalence of false teachers. He calls them empty talkers and deceivers. He says in verse 11, they're misleading whole families and teaching things they should not teach for the sake of money, sordid gain. The early church was immediately infiltrated by undercover wolves, right? false shepherds in sheep's clothing. So how can we spot them? Well, Paul says, Titus 1.16, he tells us, same thing. He says of them, they profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny him. Being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. You likewise need to be wise and discerning. These examinations, they're, they're not hard to do because fruit, just give it a little time, becomes obvious, becomes visible to the naked eye. Just, just as the nature of a tree will reveal itself in a little time by its fruit, so the nature of all these leaders, it's going to show. Give it a little time. And just as Paul says that these false teachers are worthless for any good deed, Jesus likewise says they are worthless. His words. It can only mean one thing. Number four, the end of false prophets. What happens to them? The end of false prophets. Jesus tells us in verse 19, back in Matthew 7. He says, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And we already established, he's not talking about trees. He's talking about here specifically prophets. So what is the consequence of the false prophets' hypocrisy and duplicity? He says that they're cut down and thrown into the fire. And the verses sandwiching this verse right before, right after, make crystal clear what this fire represents. This is the same destruction Jesus mentioned in verse 13, speaking of the second death of eternal judgment. This is the same rejection from the kingdom he's going to mention in verse 21, when those who don't know him are cast away from him forever. When Jesus himself sits as judge, false prophets, they're only going to hear this from Jesus. It's found in Matthew 25, verse 41. He will say to them, depart from me, accursed ones, 
into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. As James 3, 1 warns, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing as such, we will incur a stricter judgment. So for the false teacher, what kind of stricter judgment awaits them? Those guilty of murder, spiritual murder in the first degree. Peter says of these false teachers, he says, they secretly introduce destructive heresies, but he says they bring swift destruction on themselves. Second Peter 2, 1. And then verse 3, he says, And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. It's coming. Let's give it a little time, but it's coming. And when it comes, it will be great. Jude 13 says that for such false teachers, he says, the black darkness has been reserved forever. So they're going to be cut down. With Christ teaching on wolves and sheep's clothing, it it might remind you of Aesop's fables. Aesop, a slave in the 6th century BC, wrote all these fables, and he had his own tale about a wolf in sheep's clothing. I wonder if you remember how that actual fable ends. There was a wolf who could not get enough to eat because of the watchfulness of the shepherd. But one day he found a sheep's skin discarded, so he put it on. He was posing as a sheep. He wandered into the sheepfold unnoticed. And reasoned to himself that this evening was going to be a slaughter. And the shepherd falls asleep. But little did he know that night, the shepherd had a desire for mutton. And so he entered the sheepfold. He was going to take one sheep to slaughter. And the one he laid hold of and killed was the wolf. And the moral of the story is how the evildoer often comes to harm through his own deceit. That is not always true in this life. But it is always true in the next. That God will judge. He will bring about retribution on those who cause so much spiritual destruction. Their destruction is not asleep. So let all false teachers be warned, but also let God's people be comforted in a measure, knowing that the good shepherd, he will guard his true sheep. He will judge justly in the end. And for emphasis, Jesus finishes verse 20. He says again, so then you will know them by their fruits. Clear emphasis, this is the the big takeaway. We must be wary and on guard, judging by fruit. We have to judge carefully. To some, some people don't like this whole passage. It sounds too judgy, too critical, too harsh. But this is the Lord of the church telling us what to do. What, What else can we do? The safety of the sheepfold depends on it. And again, I think this is all the more important today because There's never been more false prophets, or at least not with a greater reach with mass media. They they can swindle millions. And with mass media, we all have access, so much more access to God's word and good teaching. And that's a great thing. But, you know, false teachers have had a, a field day and they are better at using media. Just face it, it's sad. I'm not that good. They're excellent at using media. But let me ask you, how wise and discerning are you with when it comes to what teaching, what influence you are putting yourself under on your own? And what, what books do you read? What sermons, what podcasts do you listen to? What YouTube videos do you watch? What social medias do you follow or media accounts do you follow? And what influencers do you let influence you? And how do you know all these influences are good? Have you judged carefully? I'm sure you don't want to put yourself under the sway of a false teacher. So have you? Do you know? 
actually seems like we could use even more equipping on how to spot wolves in sheep's clothing in our day and age. I actually think this is so important that we are going to come back next week, consider it even further. Jesus says twice, you'll know them by their fruit. It's a big deal. Broadly speaking, we've learned that refers to their teaching and their life, right? Their conduct, their character, what they say, what they do. But we can actually get much more specific than that. There are, there's a multitude of scriptures specifically telling us how to identify the false teacher. And with the prevalence today, I think we need that. I think the church needs that equipping. So we're going to come back next week for that, that we can be as wise and discerning as possible. As a final word for our time this morning, though, I think we can balance all this discernment with a word of caution. That what Jesus says in this passage, he's not sending us on a false teacher witch hunt. Like this is now our job just to be running around pointing out false teachers everywhere. We're on guard for ourselves, our flock, like like Peter said and Paul. But we have to also mention that a serious spiritual pride accompanies those who only ever point the finger at others. We need to heed the words of Jesus in this passage so we can't accept false teachers. We're going to even consider it further. But let's not so quickly forget the lesson of chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, which reminds us to judge ourselves first. Point this finger at ourselves first. Take the log out of our own eye first. So you read a passage like this, we need to beware the false teacher. But I think your first and foremost response should be with this, these sobering words about trees and fruit. Are you bearing fruit in keeping with repentance and faith? Are you a good tree? To examine yourself first, I don't know if you notice verse 17, it's notable how Jesus seems to broaden his scope narrowly from false teachers to broad universal language where he says every tree now, every tree, that's good, will bear good fruit. He switches to universal language and other scriptures affirm that this principle applies not just to the false teacher, but to all Christians. You know them by their fruit. The true believer, the false believer, whether they claim to be a prophet or not, You'll know them by their fruit. Spiritual fruit reveals the nature of faith. We'll see that highlighted big time in verses 21 through 23, the next passage. But even for now, do you give evidence of saving faith by your character, your speech, your repentance? What would your fruit reveal about your faith? We know we're not saved by works. We're saved by faith alone, apart from works But the faith that saves thereafter gets to work. It's going to show itself. Saving faith, we're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. It it bears itself out. It works itself out in the fruit of righteousness like we've learned all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. And so, yes, there's much more that we need to say and study about false teachers that we are not deceived. But I think we'd be content for this morning to examine ourselves first. Check the fruit on your own tree first. Something we're told to do, 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. And ultimately, let us measure ourselves by whether or not we are truly treasuring and following Christ. The, The ultimate test, whether we are truly treasuring and following Christ. Because he's the only way. He's the only Savior. He's the only Good Shepherd. So let's make sure we know Him and we follow Him, just like He said back in John ten twenty seven. He said, "My sheep hear My voice, and I know them; they follow Me." 
Let's make, we sh- make sure we follow Christ in all of his words. Let's end in a word of prayer.